This is a sacred pyramid in the ancient deserted city of Tikal, 300 miles south of Mexico City. In this dead city there once lived for thousands of years the peaceful and cultured people known to us as the Mayan, a people versed in the science of mathematics and astronomy. But one day, in the year 607 AD, the Mayans immigrated toward the distant and savage north, abandoning the homes and pyramids and temples they had constructed so artfully. Not a single person was left behind, and the city remained deserted. Little by little, the jungle swallowed their streets and buildings, leaving no trace of what had once been a thriving civilization. The scientific expeditions that have attempted to throw light upon the reasons for this migration have never been able to explain it. It was once thought that they had been defeated by an enemy tribe, but what tribe could have been strong enough to defeat the great Mayan people? There exists no indication of any cataclysm of nature that could have forced a whole people to abandon the land on which they had always lived to build a new kingdom somewhere else. The mystery still exists, and today, the few nomad Indians who cross this area recount how their ancestors fled this land in order to escape the wrath of a vengeful goddess. A goddess who hungered for blood. Kaltiki. You are listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on sight. The following podcast may contain language and discussions of a frank and adult nature, and spoilers regarding the films discussed are always to be expected. Thank you for joining us. Now start the show, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on sight! So I haven't even seen the new Doctor Who yet. I've heard good things. I have too, but I'm not going to watch it till tomorrow. And the reason why is because I'm here doing this now. If I was not here doing this now, I would have watched it tonight. So that's uh, that's the sacrifice I'm making for this podcast. We're not even on the air yet. This isn't even being recorded, so you know. It is being recorded. Oh, okay. So you could <laughs> you could throw this on if you want to. <laughs> I appreciate your sacrifice, uh, Daniel. Yeah, no, uh, you'll, you'll 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 give a bigger share of the Patreon money this month. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. I get it. I get it. <laughs> I will get a larger percentage of the zero dollars that we get for making this. Yeah, mm-hmm. get yeah, you'll get more. You'll get more of the zero than I did. Mm-hmm. I get a greater percentage, meaning I have to pay more for the hosting that you're paying for that I'm not. <laughs> so really, I owe you like an extra dollar that I'm not paying you anyway. So you know, it's a good point. Yeah, your bill will be in the mail. Okay, yeah, yeah. Welcome. It is. They must be destroyed on site. Episode one hundred and thirty-seven. I am your host, Lee. See that no one touches him for any reason, Russell. And I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel. Will you have a Betatron put in my disposal, please, Harper? How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, and I just admire the film for correctly using the mega electron volt terminology. Although it makes no sense in the film. Like, it's completely nonsense. The, co- yeah, the, the yeah, context yeah. is just totally Yeah, the shit. context makes no sense. But somebody did actually make a little uh, dial, and they drew in, like, a, a little uh, very nicely done mega electron volt and with a little needle. And mm-hmm. uh, But that's not how carbon dating works at, at all. <laughs> and carbon dating doesn't measure things to 20 million years. So none of this makes any sense. But... I did admire the mega electron volt, just the fact that it exists in the film. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the film we're going to be talking about is Keltiki, the Immortal Monster, the uh, Italian US co production from 1959. But before we get into that, we do have one listener comment to get to. This is again from YouTube, so expect the worst already, people. This is from someone called Adam. Sinji, I believe it's pronounced. I, I believe it's an Eastern European word. And you know, uh, can you spell it? C z i n e g e. Chinge. Chinge. The C z is like a ch sound. So ch sound. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. At but, least if uh, it's Czech, you know. Yeah. But. And and you know, not to generalize 
uh, in, in stereotype here, but I found a lot of Eastern Europeans, there must be like, it must be a, I'm suspecting it's a language barrier problem where their comments often come off more snarky than they're intended. Like they try to give you constructive criticism, but it just comes off them being a dick. I, I've just experienced that a lot in YouTube comments. I don't know. Maybe it's just because they're YouTube comments and they're dicks. YouTube comments YouTube. in general are just a dickish. 50 yeah. I just assume the like bog standard YouTube commenter is just an asshole 14 year old who <laughs> will never, ever always assist, assist kid, assist man, assist child, a boy who will not touch a boob for at least 15 years. Oh, that's, probably longer. He'll probably become yeah. an incel. Yeah, yeah. That that's my that's my baseline standard. And I, I have no I have no criticism of asexual people and people but these are these are uh little chuds that live in their basement who spend all their time on YouTube because they the have world is scary. The outside world is scary. And you know, look, I you know, I was that kid at one point, but uh, you know, some of us grow up and some of us don't. And I would just like to encourage if you are a fourteen year old listening to this podcast and watching this on YouTube and you feel like, you know, women are terrible and I should just make snarky asshole comments to nerds who use their spare time to talk about movies on the internet and criticize them. Maybe there are better things to do with your life and like improve yourself rather than criticize others. And with that being said, maybe I should actually listen to this comment. Yeah. So here's what he says. And this was on our episode we did on Zardoz. So this was a while ago. <laughs> a while ago. Yep. He says, next time you want to make content like this, at least get a decent microphone. And now, um, I have a decent microphone. I don't have a good microphone, but I have a decent microphone. I mm-hmm. that is one where we did have a, a call-in guest. Uh, yeah, we had yeah and, Hugh. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I can't remember if he had a decent microphone or not. But um, I think he might have you know. did it off his iPhone or something like that. Yeah, but. no, I, I mean, you know, not that I'm criticizing Hugh. I mean, our our commenter is still kind of an asshole for you know. Yeah, you know. You're not creating anything yourself, but you have the nerve to critique our technical abilities. Um, basically, what I said to him is this comment here. Start paying us, and maybe we'll give a fuck about pop filters and higher-end mics. Until then, go away and continue to make cat videos in portrait mode, which is what features prominently on his channel. So Nicely done. Nicely done. You see, you looked at his stuff and then gave him an, an even more valid criticism, and I like, yeah. that, I like that you did that. That's it's fair, pl- it's fair yeah. play, you know. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Yeah, no. I actually looked at like all three of his cat videos too, because I like cat videos. Well, the cat videos are great. Cat videos are a really powerful uh, medium on YouTube. (laughs) And uh, anyway, okay. (laughs) I was there. There is there. There are jokes I could find there, but let's just move on into our into the rest of the podcast. There's no need to. uh, Yeah. There's no need to continue making fun of this guy. I mean, if he is making if he is making content, good cat videos. You know what? That's better than anything I'm gonna do on the internet. So yeah, it's like I I realized this week that no matter how hard I try, I'm not gonna be as witty as British comedians on game shows. I was watching the show this week. It's a parody version of a show called Countdown, I believe, which is a Uh word and math show. I just, I binge watched it. I started watching, like, they, they have these nice little clip shows that just show clips from it. You know, and I just been binge watching them for the last four or five days. And it's just fucking hilarious. Like, everything on it is just fucking hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should put a link in the show notes so our listeners mm. can also uh, give, it, give it a whirl. You know, It's it's, it's all these, it, like, the, the show's hosted by uh, Jimmy Carr. Yep. And then they just have all these really funny british comedians who are just constantly shit talking each other it's it's basically just a roast with the uh, pretext of uh, it being a game show <laughs> yeah like like countdown is this huge show i mean it's a little bit like jeopardy uh-huh. in the in the uk i mean it's this uh you know this huge uh, very popular very you know so, so much so that the it crowd which is one of the greatest sitcoms ever made and its creator is complete transphobic dickhead who has now been cited by the uk authorities for being a transphobic dickhead as of like a couple of days ago wow. <laughs> um, yeah no he was actually uh yeah no it, it's kind of amazing but anyway they did an episode which is all about one of the main characters going on to countdown and they don't like describe 
the process of countdown because like everybody in the UK knows what the fuck countdown is. But uh Yeah, that's the feeling I got that it's like that big of a cultural thing. I can imagine doing a kind of celebrity Jeopardy, which is not really about doing Jeopardy as much as it is about just like people shit talking for mm-hmm. three minutes. And that sounds really entertaining and I will actually probably watch some of this. So, you know, including I... I was laughing at that. Like, that's, yeah. I, I needed some laughs these last couple of weeks, and man, that, that was good. If you've been following the news in the U.S. for the last week or so, we've been needing some of that as well. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's terrible shit all around. But yeah, since we're basically ostensibly talking about what we've watched lately, I know you have something, so uh, I'll let you go right into it, Daniel. Yeah, um, I watched a... Uh, we saw uh, theatrically the uh, new movie, or not new anymore, it was a couple of weeks ago because our schedule is kind of weird. But uh, my wife and I saw White Boy Rick, the um, okay. uh, kind of indie production that's about this kid. And I didn't know the story ahead of time. I had only kind of seen the trailer. And the trailers kind of sell this as, oh, it's going to be kind of a goofy story about this white boy in Detroit who ends up being a drug kingpin and you know it's going to be kind of dark comedy and there are elements of that but man this is a really punishing um it's co-produced by darren aronofsky and if you Mm -hmm. kind of imagine with the tone of the wrestler but doing a kind of dark comedy about this 14 year old kid who starts slinging coke because the uh fbi forces him and then uh you know bad things happen Mm. that's kind of what the that's kind of what the film is like. It do, it does remind me a lot of the wrestler. It's not as good as the wrestler because the wrestler is fucking genius because of some great performances and some great like structure. I don't know quite how to feel about this film, White Boy Rick. Honestly, I feel like I kind of walked into it not necessarily knowing what I was walking into, and uh, it is a kind of interesting crime film because it does kind of become a crime film. And I kind of get what it's going for, but I don't quite know how effective it is. I kind of feel very middling about it. I feel like it would be an interesting one for us to cover at some point on the show. Okay. But I don't necessarily recommend it. You know? <laughs> um, but it's it's kind of an interesting experience nonetheless, especially if you're um if you've if you've kind of got Marvel uh, you know, kind of over overabundant syndrome and you're like tired yeah. of like the two hundred million dollar movies with people with capes and you want to watch like, you know, it's very depressing Detroit for, you know, two hours. Um, this is this is an interesting kind of way to go. It does strike me that a uh let, let's tell the story of the eighties uh, you know, kind of drug boom and uh, you know, <laughs> FBI misconduct in Detroit by telling the story of the one white boy who happened to be involved in it is <laughs> maybe not the uh maybe not the way you wanna go. Uh, yeah. but also, it is kind of an interesting story, although it seems that some of the stuff that's more interesting in the story isn't really in the film because I kind of looked at the the kind of the real story and it is it's very down to earth describes the kind of real events that happened, but it also sanitizes it to a great degree oh, and yeah. kind of you know but it actually is kind of an interesting thing in that this guy i mean and I didn't know this going in, and so I kind of hate describing it, but like I think most people who did a little bit of more research into like I feel like this isn't like hidden information or anything. The kid who is portrayed in the film is still in prison 35 years later. He's he's in the Michigan State prison system. And I live in the state of Michigan, you know, for anybody who might not know that just from, you know. And so there's kind of a local, although I live on the west side, I don't live in Detroit. There is this kind of automatic sympathy you have for like this, this kid ends up being the longest serving person in the Michigan State prison system who was convicted of a nonviolent offense. Oh, yeah. And, like, he's still in there for, like, complicated reasons, and it is just kind of like this indictment of the criminal justice system. And yet very little of that is really in the film. It's almost like every bit, or it's not every bit, but a huge percentage of the energy that would kind of go into this, you know? You know, so many of, like, crime films kind of have, like, oh, and then there's the good times, and we're making money, and we're doing coke, and then suddenly... Mm bad things start happening. And then, you know, this doesn't have that structure at all. I mean, it's like all the energy has just been leached out of this. And it is kind of a, it's a very, it's kind of a punishing experience, but not even in a way that's like, like Requiem for a Dream, which Uh just kind of started to bring up Aronofsky again, but he's like the master of this, right? Yeah. Like, I'm just going to pound you in the face and make you kind of love it. But like, this is going to be this like punishing, punishing experience of like watching this film. Uh, It's not even that. It's just this like slog through this gray area of moral ambiguity and suffering that you just kind (laughs) of like happen, you know, and it's kind of fascinating. I would like to cover it as crime film with you at some point in the future. I would like to see it again. 
but I also don't want to see it again. I don't think it's very good, but I think it'll be interesting for us to talk about at some point. So cool. that's where I land on it, you know. Cool. I'll put that. I, I was actually um, considering watching that, so I'm definitely going to yeah. watch it now. Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. It's 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 worth a watch if you're a movie fan. I mean, even if you consider it deeply flawed, as I'm not even sure I do consider it deeply flawed. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't know. I have really complicated feelings about it. If you can't kind of tell, yeah. But I also can't work up the energy to care enough to kind of work through those feelings, you know. And I think that us doing an episode on it would would kind of force me to you know to to really kind of approach it in a more interesting way or a more kind of I don't know. I need to see it again, but also. I don't know. It's it's it's. I, I'm. I feel very uh, ambiguous about it. You know, very ambivalent. Ambivalent is the term I'm looking for. So, yeah, right on. So if it's yeah. playing in a theater near you, and you know, you're in a headspace of like, oh, I'm interested in seeing kind of what this is. It's worth seeing. There's some good performances in it. In particular, um, I think uh, Matthew McConaughey. I, I think this this may be an award winner for him. I think he gets oh, really? a really good performance in it. The is the father of White Boy Rick. Um, I think I think he's he's very very good, and in a way that is not. It's kind of the showy, like, hey, look, I'm the kind of big name, really attractive actor, kind of playing the redneck kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and there's a little bit of that going on, but I think there's there's also a real sense of there's a real performance underneath that, and I and I think it it does kind of push those buttons in some interesting ways. So. Um, you know, I I would not be surprised to see uh, Matthew McConaughey get a little bit of love uh, come award season for this. Cool. All right. So we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to play a little bit of music, a couple podcast promos, and then we're going to be back with Kaltiki. You ungodly warlock. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension of not only film and sound, but mind. A journey into an auditory movie review adventure that must be experienced to be believed. There's a signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Doomsday Clock. You can extract the Witch vs. the Doomsday Clock podcast by either searching for WYCH on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, tune in, and on your Android device. Which versus the Doomsday Clock is a proud member of Legion Podcasts. So prepare yourself. The podcast ice is gonna break. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Uh, necrophilia. Uh, uh, uh. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this? No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, Prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get out of it. unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this movie. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. This film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept little history doll popping up at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was. How did you watch this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. You ungodly warlock.
right, Keltiki, the Immortal Monster from 1959. Ages ago, in a long-lost part of the world, the Mayans worshipped a terrifying goddess. To her, men offered their strength and their devotion. Women offered the beauty of their bodies. Al-Tiki, the immortal monster. Today, courageous adventurers, dedicated scientists of both sexes, begin the exploration of recently discovered caverns buried in the very womb of the earth. From space beyond space comes force beyond measurement, energizing this monstrous mass of man-eating protoplasm that devours every living thing it touches. When her mate appears in the sky, the power of Kaltiki will destroy the world. You can believe what you like. Kaltiki's been reborn. All civilians are to remain in their homes until further order. Every precaution has been taken to combat the danger the city faces. And all citizens are urged to remain calm. That is all for now. Can anything on this earth stop Kaltiki? The immortal monster. Directed by Ricardo Frida and Mario Bava. Written by Filippo Sanjust. It is starring John Valley as Dr. John Fielding. D.D. Perigo as Ellen Fielding. Gerard Herter as Max Gunther. Daniela Rocca as Linda. Giacomo Rossi-Stewart as Professor Rodriguez's assistant. Danielle Vargas as Bob. Vittoro Andre as Professor Rodriguez. Uh, Nerio Bernardi as police inspector. Arturo Domonici as Nito. Yeah, I went through that fairly well, I think. Hardly stumbled. Uh, of the of the list of uh, Lee completely mispronouncing Italian names, I think that was uh, right up there as one of your best performances. Yeah, I think I did all right. <laughs> uh, so we got a. I kind of, I kind of think when you do Italian names, you should lean into them and do the like Brad Pitt in Inglorious Bastards. Thing, you know? <laughs> I think you should really just do the really terrible Italian accent. You know, you know, Amerigo Vespucci. You know. <laughs> Arrivederci. Buongiorno. Buongiorno. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I might try that sometime. Uh, so here is the synopsis I pulled from IMDb, and we'll see how this works out. This is from someone called James Barrett, and he says, Archaeologists investigating some Mayan ruins come across a blob-like monster. They manage to destroy it with fire, but keep a sample. Meanwhile, a comet is due to pass close to the Earth. The same comet passed near the Earth at the time of the Mayan civilization mysteriously collapsed. Coincidence? Okay, that's a terrible synopsis because that misses a big part of the story, I think. It misses, I mean, it kind of like sells it as a, as a question mark as well, which yeah. like, I feel like from the beginning, it's, it's sort of meant to set up the sense of foreboding that there are you know, that this Kaltiki thing is going to, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, he's selling it like an art film where there's this question, but does anything actually ever happen? Think, it's like two think, hours long. and I think really he's he's selling, he's doing the thing of like when you're writing synopses. And again, I've said this, I've said this on this podcast. Uh, if you've never tried to write a synopsis for films, Try it a few times. I did this for a while, and it's it's a remarkably difficult thing to do to really kind of succinctly like sum up what's in what's in a movie. But I think he's t- doing the back of the book thing of like trying to s- sell the movie to you, mm-hmm. but in a way that is not actually indicative of the content of the film, 
But then again, most movie marketers don't actually really sell what's in the content of the film either. So, you know, there you yeah. Go. So, uh, as I mentioned, there's two directors on this, uh, Ricardo Frida and Mario Bava. And this is one of Mario Bava's first times he got credited as being a director on anything. He was mm-hmm. sort of graduating up the Italian film ranks uh, from basically just doing special effects, which is mostly what he did on this movie too. He did most of the special effects and directed those sequences. So, uh, well, we'll get into that, but I'll just let you uh, get into it here, Daniel. What What are your thoughts on this? Uh, this feels very 1959 to me and mm-hmm. some really good ways. I really like kind of the, the fifties monster movies. Um, the version I watched was the Amazon Prime version, which uh, okay. looks pretty phenomenal. There is a version on YouTube. There are a couple versions on YouTube, one yep. of which does not have subtitles. So I wasn't able to watch that one. <laughs> but <laughs> no, there is a really shitty print with subtitles uh, in you know in English. I didn't watch that version. It would be interesting to see this without the really crisp, clear print because the effects are kind of the reason to watch this. This is kind of a middling, decent little 50s sci-fi horror fl- film. I enjoyed it. I was really enjoying some of the uh, <laughs> some of the racist, but uh, it's boring, the racism kind of stuff towards the yeah. beginning. I thought there was some kind of interesting uh, elements going on about uh, kind of, you know, indigenous populations and, you know, like kind of Western people kind of coming in and going places they're not meant to go and some of the, uh, you know... <laughs> the colorism at work that, that's mm-hmm. at work there. And then it kind of becomes a little bit of a Godzilla remake to some degree. Mm-hmm. And that's about the point at which you start to get some really, really phenomenal special effects that hold up. I mean, some of the stuff in this film holds up today. I can imagine it being made in a low budget, you know, sci-fi horror film now. And it is kind of amazing because we're used to seeing kind of rubber monsters and kind of like really right. cheesy effects in these things. And when you do get like really decent special effects, it almost feels like a modern take on one of these old movies, you know, as opposed to, but this is kind of made at the time. And that's kind of a fascinating little thing in my head to, to kind of approach it that way. And then towards the end, you kind of end up, I kind of say it feels like a little bit of a remake of Godzilla where, I mean, it does feel like somebody in this film had a real problem with the way that flamethrowers are used in world war two. I think <laughs> there's a real, uh, there's a real context here that was fascinating. And yeah, I don't know. It's an hour and 15 minutes long. It felt perfect for that length. Mm-hmm. I loved the film overall. I did not get a chance to rewatch this today as I meant to because I had some, some work commitments. Some of the details have left my mind already, which is not necessarily a good sign for like a film I'd recommend. But I do recommend this. This is really, this is really quite good. Yeah, I recommend it too. Um, I'd seen this a long time ago. This is one of those ones where, yeah, there were some releases, but it was very, very rare, and the releases all looked like shit. I saw a VHS of this a long time ago that looked like hot garbage, and it's pretty much akin to one of the prints you find on YouTube, the uh, the one with the subtitles, I believe, that's mm-hmm. yep. just, you can barely watch it. Like, you can barely see... It, it actually looks worse than some of the prints you find on those um, 50 movies uh, pack discs or whatever. Right, right? Yeah. The print you provided me, the, the Rare Lust print, which is the recent Blu-ray print, I assume. My God, this is a beautiful black and white film. And just the fact that it's black and white really helps enhance the effects. Like, oh, yeah. Black and white can cover up a lot of seams and a lot of edges on things. And here, yeah, the, the special effects just look great. Like, there's there's all this... The the one negative, the one negative in terms of the effects is just that uh, some of the model shots are very obviously model shots. But that's not even really a criticism. That's just, it's a model shot. It looks like, a you know, it doesn't... Yeah. Even but, even, but even in that context, it works on screen. We spend, particularly starting around the halfway point, we spend a good portion of this film kind of just looking at the effects. Mm -hmm. I hate to reduce a film like this to its effects, but these are really, for 1959, these are phenomenal effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you get some really uh, great uh, sort of miniature work here. You've got Mm -hmm. miniature sets built so you can, you know, so you don't have to actually make a blob to scale, you know, like you... (laughs) Right, right. Um, there, there is a, there is a little bit there is a little bit of like that kind of looks like a penis. There's a lot of that yeah. looks like a penis. It's slowly expanding in a dollhouse hallway. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of pushing its way upstairs. There, there's a lot of that with the blob. 
where yeah. you, that that looks a little bit like a really condom you stuck some stuff on and then just got somebody erect for. But that's <laughs> a good thing. It gives it yeah. this organic, uh, you know. Uh, well, like uh, did did you did you read what they used for this to make this blog? No, I did. I, I really did no research on this. It was, I, I it did, was uh, at the time, and I kind of enjoyed just watching it and like speculating about what they did to make this without actually uh, doing there, it. There's a reason uh, it looks like or- organic material because it was made out of tripe. Out of uh, oh yeah, yeah. sure. So uh, I'm, I'm sure there was ladders in it to inflate it and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so basically, it's like it's it's like intestines. Mm-hmm. That they just like, put air into and inflate and deflated. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes yeah, sense. And just dressed it up a little bit or whatever. But um, well, there's one portion that actually looks a little like there's there's almost and I and I I hate to kind of push it this way. There's a bit. Uh, there's a there's a moment that looks a little bit like where like legs are spreading sort of mm-hmm. thing. You know, like this. So there, there there is a there is a kind of like there's a sexiness to some of the some of the effects work some of the some of the goopy kind of disgusting i i, I love how slimy but not like it looks mm-hmm. I, it looks very much like when you when you peel up a uh like a bandage and it's got you know this kind of like pus and kind of yeah you know like sweat and everything and and underneath and the, the sort of the the stickiness is kind of left behind there's there's a lot of that kind of thing or you yeah know, like kind of rotting it's... chicken or whatever and you like peel up the the, the mm-hmm. skin, you know, there's this kind of like it just pulls up in this very overt way and in, in, in this very kind of visceral way. Like it, again, I don't want to spend so much time with the effects, but they're so good. And like describing exactly why, because I feel like you sit down to this and you think, oh, this is going to be kind of goofy, like little guys in rubber masks kind of effects. And then when you see like a really phenomenal looking effect, and immediately in the 21st century sense, it just kind of brings your mind right back into that moment. And, you know, it sells that moment in a way that, you know, you're not necessarily thinking kind of going into this, that you're going to really be invested in that moment in the way. So when it does, when it does look effective, it's, um, it's pretty phenomenal. I admire the degree to which this film kind of legitimately grossed me out. Yeah. yeah the effects are very uh, organic and visceral and you're right. The blob has a, like a solid mass to it. It's not like this movie came, a year after the blob um mm-hmm. and i argue i would say the effects in this are way better than the blob oh yeah definitely and the blob itself and you know in the actual blob movie it's more like a li- liquidy protoplasmic kind of thing whereas this one has solid surface to yeah, it yeah. You know, kind of thing no, this 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 looks i mean i i'd be hard pressed to say that there's anything made in this era that looks as good as this does Mm. But no, I mean, uh, I'm not saying there's definitely not like something that that was, you know, because I obviously I haven't seen everything made in that in that era. But there's stuff that we watched from the late '70s and the into the '80s that you know you could say had pretty good special effects that mm-hmm. didn't look as good as this did in a, in a lot of ways. So particularly in, a, in some some very specific shots, like when you first see like the guy's arm, yeah, and they're like, I mean that that shot is worthy of anything in any movie frankly there, in terms there, of how, how that gore is yeah the the gore there's maybe one other film i can think of that's right within this sort of era and this sort of genre that dares to be anywhere near as gory as this film mm-hmm. and that would be uh fiend without a face well i i'd be i put that on our list definitely i would i would definitely love to see that um mm-hmm. and that one just that one just does more more or less just does blood splatters Mm-hmm. But even there, even there, that was a rare thing to see. You just you didn't see blood splatter all over the place in 1950, whatever, right? Sure, it just yeah, didn't yeah. happen for the most part. But here you have full on uh, people getting eaten by this thing, and well, it feels it feels like a violation of our expectations when you see like that level of gore, when you see that level mm-hmm. of effect. It feels like uh, you know we have this sense of. Oh well, there's only so far you go in a movie like this, and then when you see something that's like that visceral, it 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 shakes us out of our expectations. So I think Night of the Living Dead plays on that same yeah. kind of thing, and in, in, in some different ways, and perhaps because that film is 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 much much more famous, some of that is blunted here. But like I kind of walked into this going like, oh, it's a '50s monster movie, and Lee recommends it, and so it's going to be kind of fun to watch, and like, oh yeah, look, it's going to be cute. And then suddenly, when you run into you know some of those gore effects, like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I mean, it it honestly surprised me in, in a good way. 
Yeah, there, there's more kind of there's less goofy stuff going on here. There's more like deadly serious stuff here. Like mm-hmm. it it has it sort of pulls from uh, you know I, I don't like throwing this word around so much because it, it gets used too much. But like there's kind of a Lovecraftian thing to this, just with the yep. the whole cosmic horror kind of connection. And then it also has this very um, really reminds me of the Quatermass. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, so much of this reminds me of Doctor Who. Not I mean the the flamethrowers. There's a particular reference to flamethrowers in uh, '60s Doctor Who, which we could we could talk about if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I want to save the flamethrower talk for for kind of a little bit further on because I think that's okay. a different thing. I mean, I don't know. We can, we jump around all the time, but yeah. You know, um, no, I feel like we should. I, I feel like we've been talking about the effects a lot, and that's maybe my fault. Um, but I did actually really like their performances as well. I liked um, uh, I liked some of them. <laughs> I liked some, some of them. Some of them. Um, really, I liked the women in this. Can I can I just yeah. say I like the women in this, particularly uh, Daniela Rocca, mm-hmm. and Linda. She was always going to be my favorite. My wife watched the first like forty five minutes of this with me. She's like, I know who your favorite is. So, yeah, well, clear. Yeah, you know, yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing myself. Although, yeah. although uh, sadly, she basically just plays the traumatized abuse victim in this film because all yeah. she is is abused by uh, the stock villain in this, Max Gunther. Yeah, who's her? I guess her like former love or boyfriend or whatever the, fuck the I, I, honestly was. honestly i i completely lost track of any sense of who these characters were yeah like beyond a certain point and i and i feel bad about that but i also you know like the, this is yeah at a certain point this isn't a film necessarily where we're supposed to track all the details of like who these people <laughs> are you know like Although I mean, the the thing is, the film, even though it's only like seventy minutes long or whatever, it does try to pad the first half of the film with these relationships to right. a certain degree. Like it tries to build that love triangle thing, and it's like yeah. we don't need any of this. <laughs> well, it, try, it it tries to build that out, and at first I thought this is going to be kind of what the film is. If we're going to spend most of our time in Mexico City, and I put that in, in mm-hmm. broad quotes, you know. Um, I don't know where this was shot, but you know, I'm I'm assuming it's all soundstage. They all looked all yeah. like sets in Italy to me, but really yeah, good yeah. ones. No, no, no. I mean, it looked good. I mean, again, mm-hmm. like it looked really effectively made. I did have this thought of I couldn't tell at first whether they were speaking Italian or Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a while before you know you kind of get the oh. They're, they are actually speaking Italian, so which was kind of an interesting experience. I found myself really being involved in that first 30 minutes just because I feel like it is kind of like, oh, we're talking about the Mayan civilization, we're talking about indigenous population, and then white people are going to come in and fuck everything up, basically. <laughs> and like I did like the little uh, dance sequence, you know, where, yep. you know, we, we know we know we've entered a place where terrible things are afoot because there are black people dancing. Yeah. Therefore, you know, therefore, horrible things are happening here. Um, I could not find a, uh, a real, like a real reference to who the dancer was and uh, yeah, whether she had a career or like kind of, kind of, you know, where that went afterwards and maybe, Maybe you have some information on that, but yeah, I didn't. Um, I didn't see anything. I, I did. Yeah. I looked as well. I didn't find anything. It, it's it's one. It's one of those things to where you know nobody was keeping track of it at the time, and so you know, you you'd almost have to have a, like a modern person kind of looking back and finding out who did that. I mean, it's just one of those things we talk about every now and then, where you know there is this really talented dancer who was in this film. Five minutes of this film is really just about watching her dance. But nobody bothered to care who she was. Just, just like our conversation, uh, kitten with a whip, where we talked no, about no, the absolutely. dancer. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah. Sorry, I just like to, to to highlight those things because it is it is just a hole in our understanding of this whole area of film. Where you know mm-hmm. somebody cast her, somebody brought her on the film. She did a phenomenal job for a day, and who knows who she was or where she went on well, or what she did for the rest of her life, you know? Yeah. And I'd also question who were all those, uh, black yeah, how do they, how do they film this? Exactly. Exactly. You know, where, where did they come from? Because, okay, perhaps I'm wrong here, but I don't think there's any, I mean, there's definitely different shades of, of skin color mm-hmm. in South central South America and all that, but, do any of them have kinky hair like that? I don't think so. So, like, you kind of assume these are, like, African workers of some sort or black workers or from the I, best well, who, well, who knows, especially if they filmed in Italy. To I hate to speculate because even to speculate kind of lends into a certain, like, 
racist expectation, right? You know, sort of like we're ignorant of where these where where these people might have come from. But in 1959 in Italy, you know, absolutely you had you know like Moroccan um, traders and like Moroccan immigrants doing you know day labor in the in the trades and all that sort of thing. And no doubt some of them also kind of did uh, you know theater on the side or whatever. And so mm-hmm. I mean. There's a whole story in terms of how that was shot and how that was produced that has just been lost in terms of like how the, you know no one has I don't want to say no one literally no one has asked the question but no one with any degree of like access to capital in terms of like going and researching it for the 60 years since this film was made has yeah. bothered to ask the question and that just speaks to this is the kind of this is what we do and this is why i i wanted to highlight it you know in this this conversation you know so anyway it kind of makes the film like watching that little little, that little sequence and uh i'm sure there's some racist uh (laughs) background in terms of like how the how the dance was done and you know you know i'm sure there's this is not like some authentic central american no it it feels very made up very made it feels very made up but it's also um, effective as far as it goes, and it's well produced. And I mean, even just seeing black faces in a film of this kind that are not made diminutive, that are not uh, that, that really get to fill this space, um, even though we really don't have a name or anything to attach to it. Uh, there, right. there is some, there is some power to that, you know. So yeah, I should probably shut up about this topic now. I think, <laughs> I think I've said enough. <laughs> so here's another question, and this is definitely a wild aside. The first time we see the uh, the main female lead. She's wearing an incredibly tight shirt, and it looks like her breasts are sweating profusely. <laughs> I, I, it, it definitely looks hot in a lot yeah. of this. I mean, and, and I think some of the sweat. I mean, so maybe there's somebody with a with like a squirt gun going like. Squirt, That's what squirt, I was wondering. Like, well, <laughs> was there that tension to detail or? Uh, this it looks like there's some money behind this. Like mm-hmm. this, this does not feel like this was made in a budget of four dollars. Well, no, the, uh, the the previous film that Bava and Frida did together was called I Vampiri, and apparently that's somewhat of a minor classic and kind of one of the first films that really sort of started sending the Italian film industry towards more horror films. Yeah, I, I think, I think we should definitely cover that. I, I think yeah. I clicked on that and went, well, yeah, that looks good. We should do that. That, that one was a big hit. So I think they had some money with this. They were like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to do it again. So uh, put, let's put some money behind it. So uh, yeah, you, you, you can tell there was, there was some money like this, a lot of the effects and stuff like, again, going back to that, the, the sets, the effects, they look a way better than a lot of Italian stuff we've watched in the preceding like twenty years. Yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> After this, right? I mean, a lot of this. I mean, again, a lot of this stands up even to like modern scrutiny. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and, and part of that is the black and white. Black and white hides some yeah. of the uh, some of the details, but also that's a decision you make when you're making a you know like you, you, you put the budget where you need it to be to make it look good, and as long as it looks good. It's fine, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what do you, what, what do you think of the character of Max, who's the uh, sort of stock, uh, morally ambiguous guy who becomes the evil bad guy by the end because of uh, his circumstances? Like in this one, basically. So he's this. Hold on. This so is he the guy whose arm gets like eaten yes. away by the? Okay, yeah. No, and then he's he's apparently in a relationship with Linda, and then he just kind of goes mad, and then I don't. I don't know. I had I had very little like connection to him as a character. <laughs> I had much more connection to him as the delivery system for a special effect. Mm-hmm. And if that tells you anything about like just how I felt about him, that's what I, that's what I I, I kind of liked him in in the sense that he is kind of this uh, stock uh, B movie monster movie character, and that he's yeah. the overacting bad guy. He's constantly trying to push himself on the Ellen character, the the, the main. Right. Uh, female lead here because he's he's in a relationship with linda but mm-hmm. he's pushing himself on lynn on ellen because she's white and blonde so yeah you know, clearly and i had i kept having like flashbacks to high noon on this you know? <laughs> i kind of feel like there's a, there's an essay in uh describing him as the lead in high noon Mm. You know, like this is the real version of how that relationship works. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, man, he's every time like Linda, who is just hopelessly being like abused by this guy and keeps yeah. coming back to him. He's constantly threatening her with death. 
if you if you cross me, I'll kill you, and all this other stuff. And once he gets his arm eaten off by the blob, and apparently, um, like there, there's an angle to this that uh, the radiation from the comet that is coming back to Earth will make the blob grow exponentially, and that was right. what. That was what forced the Mayan civilization to basically give up all the creature comforts of their civilization and move away from the area to live humbler lives or whatever, right? That's sort of like the explanation given here as to why did the Mayans just drop it all and leave? Uh, Where did they go? And so here the comet is coming back and it infuses the Keltiki monster with radiation, and the radiation apparently is causing uh, Max to slowly go insane. I think he just kind of gets all uh, sex nuts and insane because his jerking hand gets eaten off, basically, is what happens here. (laughs) (laughs) My right hand is gone. I can't jerk Mm -hmm. off sufficiently, and therefore now I have to, you know... I have to sexually assault someone. You know, basically what happens is the... uh, (laughs) <laughs> the disease, the monster, the blob, uh, creates a situation in which the toxicity of his inceldom becomes uh, mm-hmm. revealed. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a very 2018 kind of... Yeah, uh, it really is. <laughs> and this um, blob, this blob, which really is this thing, which is this metaphor for the uh, terror that imperialist uh, Europe... Had to fear from indigenous populations, you know, which is yeah, obviously yeah. a metaphor for disease, and ultimately, you know, any kind of metaphor based on that is is really about syphilis, mm-hmm. um, because syphilis <laughs> is kind of the one thing that was, uh, you know, so so here's how the Columbian Exchange worked: uh, Europeans brought disease, which literally decimated, uh, by which I mean reduced by like ninety percent, by like even mild projections where, you know, like one in 10 indigenous Americans survived yeah. uh, the disease process. But the other side was the Native Americans, uh, you know, gave syphilis to the, to the Europeans and then they brought it to Europe and then that became the thing. So like, yeah, 90% of all the Native Americans died, but uh, we got a new STI out, out of, uh, in Europe. And uh, <laughs> that would, that's the, th- and that's the thing that became, you know, the, the real thing that we fear, you know, yeah. because and, we're white people, you know. And I guess you could, you know, you could, uh, there's, there's another uh, Lovecraft uh, connection, uh, fear of the outsider, fear of the monster, fear of... Fear oh, of yeah, the... no, no, oh, no, no, I mean, <laughs> I haven't, I honestly, I don't, there's so much to that, that first 30 minutes, and I just don't remember it well enough to really want to dig into the details, mm-hmm. but there's a lot in the, in the first 30 minutes that is, uh, this kind of sublimated fear of you know non-white people and like indigenous populations and kind of like this uh we're imperialist and we're kind of doing our thing and we're going out there and like using science to quote-unquote civilize the natives yeah there's something they know that we don't and it's going to annihilate us all there's some really interesting stuff in that and it's pretty well done here and I just don't feel like I know the film well enough to uh, explore that competently. Yeah, I am interested, and I and I kind of mentioned this earlier, and that is in the end of the film, you spend a lot of time with flamethrowers. There's, there's like it feels like a fifteen minute sequence of flamethrowing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's. I mean, in, in a seventy five minute film, and you know, I kind of watched this in uh, a couple of segments, so I kind of got to like the you know the forty five minute part, and then kind of you know, watch the rest. And then basically I'm like, holy shit, are we just going to watch people like burn shit with flamethrowers for 20 minutes? And yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of what we do. The flamethrower was used in, you know, World War One, mm-hmm. became a, uh, a bigger thing in World War Two, And I feel like there is, I, I, I did compare this to Godzilla and Godzilla is very transparently about the kind of fear of the kind of nuclear era uh, from the point of view of the Japanese. I do think there was somebody making this film who had a real anxiety about the way that flamethrowers were used against uh, populations in Italy in World War II. That, that and, uh, could be very possible, yeah. There, there's a ton of, you know, we're we're just watching, you know, basically the military rolls in and they just start like burning everything down. Mm-hmm. It's really visceral, and I think there's a part of like they just kind of had the technology, they had the special effects budget to make pretty convincing flamethrowers, and they are pretty convincing mm-hmm. flamethrowers. It looks great. 
but also yeah a lot of this film i mean just kind of like i mean kind of the whole like everything just moves to the side and suddenly they're just burning shit to the ground and (laughs) it's like wow there's something really uh, interesting kind of going on here either we have this technology and we decided to use it and it looks cool because it does look cool or some uh there's something supplemented here no, you might be right. There there definitely is just an aspect as well of start the movie off hot and end the movie off hot, literally, you yeah. know, like, uh, because when this movie starts, the, the credit sequence and everything, it's explosions. It's like volcanic explosions and other yeah. explosions and for no real reason that I can think of. Well, I think, of- I think, I think volcanic explosions are just meant to like imply like a kind of primordial earth. Yeah. Kind of like this thing. I mean, and you, you use Lovecraft and I, I don't necessarily feel comfortable kind of using Lovecraftian with this film, although mm-hmm. anything with the giant blob is kind of vaguely Lovecraftian, you know, in a way. I just don't feel competent discussing that issue, so I'm just kind of it's table just, that, you know? Yeah, for me, it's just the um, the thing's been around longer than human beings, and it's yeah, no, no, thing, it's, just, you know, it's, just, kind of. it's this ancient thing kind of hanging around. Although it doesn't seem to represent some kind of modernist influence. No. You know? No. Um, which seems to be like Lovecraft's real anxiety about things. It seems to just kind of represent the kind of primordial. But then again, the idea of like natives having, you know, natives, sorry, like complicated, <laughs> you know, but natives having knowledge of things that are beyond like European experiences, it, it definitely kind of finds itself in Lovecraft, but it doesn't seem to kind of represent a, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to represent women having orgasms or no. like black people existing. And therefore I think it's probably not like strictly Lovecraft. <laughs> no, it's not, not in that sense. No. Or, or, you know, like math being more complicated than we thought it was. Those are the three <laughs> things that I feel like, like supplement so much of Lovecraft's anxieties yes. about the, about the 20th century world, you know? Yeah. It turns out it turns out that geometry is not just like planes. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> I also mentioned uh, I like I like how one of the main characters is basically just written off for no reason. Uh the older doctor character who just has a car crash and dies for no reason in the script at all it just happens. <laughs> Because apparently they probably had stock footage of a car going off a cliff, and it's like, let's use it. <laughs> Good enough for me. Good enough yeah. for me. I, I actually don't even remember that, which tells you like the degree to which I. It, it briefly happens, the, and the movie yeah. forgets it that it ever happened. It's just like, eh, whatever. <laughs> I took a very uh, phenomenological approach to this film in terms of mm-hmm. like I was kind of watching what happened on the screen. I really enjoyed it while it was happening, and it completely left my memory. So you know. Yeah. Yeah. I like this a lot, though. Um, I like it a lot better than the original Blob. Um, yeah, I think this is. This, way this is. I've, I've kind of. I've kind of like uh, undersold this. Uh, undersold this bit. I don't know if this is on my list for like top ten, but it's probably on an honor honorable mention list. I'll have to. We'll see. Kind of where the. Like I liked it a lot. I'm. I say this a lot on this podcast, and then I hardly ever do it. But I. I probably would like to actually rewatch this and see. You know, kind of you know, what was there that I wasn't necessarily noticing on a first kind of casual watch. So it's a, it's a painless rewatch. I've, I've, I rewatched it uh, tonight and I set into it appreciating photography even more. Like I liked, yeah. I liked how some of the shots were set up. I just liked how the black and white with this sort of restored version looks so goddamn good. Yeah. Sometimes just, just, just amazing. The, some and of the stuff in the film. If you are, I know we're we're kind of wrapping up. We're going into the DVD info and stuff. If you are an Amazon Prime member, you can watch completely gorgeous print of this just as part of your Prime membership. I, I'm I'm not going to shill for Jeff Bezos, who is the richest man in the world and who keeps his employees in subjugation, all that sort of thing. But if you want to give ten bucks a month to Amazon, you can watch this for free, and it's a gorgeous. That's a gorgeous watch. So. Yeah. So, like I said, yeah, the the monsters are made out of tripe. Uh, Ricardo Frida would later claim that he abandoned this project so that Mario Bava, who he knew could be a good director, would have a chance to direct. Bava helmed most of the special effects sequences, one of several uncredited jobs at the time that he had. This is where he was really sort of starting to get behind the camera and stuff. Um, Yeah. So, you know, he also did the same with uh, I Vampiri with uh, Frida, too. So, there is speculation. I I read this actually, I was uh, recently searching this through uh, Google uh, Books, where, you know, they give you sometimes a preview of some of the books and stuff, and I was, I was reading some little pages out of a book on Italian cinema, 
there's some speculation that uh, there's a real change uh, that's five minutes in, so a little chunk of this movie might have been edited out, although mm-hmm. the Italian and uh, U.S. prints are both basically exactly the same, I guess, uh, for the most part. So they, they put a sex scene in for the, uh, for the, for the, you know... <laughs> I, I like to think there was some nudity in the first uh, in the first eight minutes, and they went, no, 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 we gotta we gotta cut that shit out. Oh, her her boobs weren't sweaty. She had just taken a yeah. bath beforehand and put that shirt on, and it was wet. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's that's. Good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that that was the only uh, interesting stuff I could really find trivia wise. It makes me realize I got to start buying more books on film, but uh, a lot of these are probably hard to get anyway at this point too. Like a lot of those Google books and shit, it's like eh, pay out the uh, butt for getting some of these. But yeah, but but a lot of those, I mean, I, I you can find a lot of them for a few bucks if you want a paper copy. You know, a lot of them are just obscure. They're obscure, and nobody's ever going to do an ebook version, or at least you know not mm. in the foreseeable capitalist future. But you know, you can you can find like a used copy. For you know five bucks, I, I own a bunch of books that were that way where I found a an ebook copy. Although a lot of those kind of books are also uh, academic texts, and that gets complicated because the academic publishers don't really have. There's not really a secondary market because academics will buy them and then keep them on their shelves and then have right. them. And because they don't really buy them, it's like uh, you know they have an you know a stipend that will just buy books for them and, yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. They have grants that just pay for all that stuff. And, uh, you know, so sometimes if you have access to an even reasonably decent university library, you can find like a uh, a copy of it where you can just kind of go and sneak in and like, you know, mm-hmm. read it. But, uh, you know, um, this is just a part of the uh, classism of the uh, academic market. Sorry, I don't have any experience with this in my <laughs> other... And you I'm have no opinion at all. At all I have no. Know. I have no feelings. I have no experience with this process of like. <laughs> I'm just some guy like researching like really complicated things and trying to find uh, bits of history and going like, oh, that's a sixty dollar book, or you know, because I live in a university town, I can go to the local. Uh, I can just sneak into the local university library and just read it for yeah. free. Yeah. yeah. Box offices for this was uh, 94.15 lira. Million. Million. million Yeah, I should stress that. Uh, Which is is about $94 from what I understand. Yeah, 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 yeah. which is still a big take in in Italy at the time. Uh, But apparently this didn't do quite as well as I, Vampiri, but it was still a pretty big hit for, for what it was. DVD info. Arrow Video in 2017 released a DVD and Blu-ray for this. And like we said, there's also the Amazon Prime. There's the YouTube versions. Um, one of the YouTube versions looks great. That's the one without the subtitles. It's all in Italian, I believe. That It looks yeah. I think that's the it same looks, It looks great, but unless you speak Italian, you're not going to mm. get a whole lot. I mean, you can still watch it. Sometimes I do wonder, you know, the experience of like watching this one for the watching these films for the first time without the subtitles and just seeing what you get out of them. You know, I, f- I think you could I feel, with this. I feel like you'd get a lot out of it, although you'd miss the uh, mega electron volt joke. So you know, yeah, you know, you you wouldn't you wouldn't get the Betatron thing. It just wouldn't yeah. work. <laughs> I don't think a Betatron's a real thing. I don't even think Betatron is. is a real thing in '59. Yeah, uh, I believe it was back then. Betatron, I believe. Okay. Yeah. It, it, it's just it's just a particle uh, accelerator or collider or something like that. It's just yeah, like I mean, you know, like they, they did have uh, – I mean, you know, I'm not a particle physicist, but, you know, um, I do have like <laughs> – I actually looked it up because i i didn't want I didn't want the the, the quote I picked for your name to sound stupid because they uh, could you get me a Betatron? I'm like, what the fuck is a Betatron? <laughs> so I looked it up. I feel like that might be like this very limited thing that existed for a brief period in the fifties. Uh, I I was kind of assuming it was this weird like sort of Italian to English mistranslation sort of thing, <laughs> you know. Like I thought it was like a you know like like in Italian like betatron like meant something you know you know like we're like we like a beta particle is a real thing and then mm-hmm. like you know like a cyclotron so maybe there you know there's a cyclotron that just produces beta particles I don't know like I'm gonna sound like a, a real scientific ignoramus uh, if it turns out to be like a real thing that was really popular for like thirty years and I just didn't know about it but uh, release this episode anyway and I, I will be embarrassed when uh, one of our Myriad uh, highly intelligent YouTube commenters. Uh, Twenty yeah. years from now, leaves a leaves a totally scathing message on this. Uh, you, know. <laughs> you pack of queers didn't know what a Betatron was. 
It was 2018, not 1978. You <laughs> queers. <laughs> so, some kid not even born yet is going to leave that comment in 20 years because mm-hmm. YouTube will never die. This will always be available. Yeah. So next time we, if uh, unless things fall to pieces and hopefully they won't, we we've got it all sort of set in stone here. Uh, we're going to have court psyops on the show, and we're going to be talking about the first two films in the Blind Did quadrilogy, and then if we can work it out, either it's just going to be myself or it's going to be some combination of me and uh, my two co-hosts, perhaps both. Uh, we're going to be on Court Psyops show a couple days later, Cinema Psyops, and talk about the Mansion of the Living Dead, which is the uh, sexy semi-porno ripoff of the Blind Dead films. Then we'll finish out with uh, the other two Blind Dead films uh, on our own on a future episode of TMB DOS. And then, and then are we done talking about like vampires for for a long time yes there's gonna be no more vampires for a long time (laughs) although although you although you did download planet of the vampires uh for us from rare lust we could do we could do we could do like one like in the middle of like doing many many not vampire related yeah you know yeah it's it's mario bava so we can you know we can let it slide a little bit mario bava he's all based on the based on what we've seen from him based on what i've seen from him he's always welcome on this podcast so it's fine you know yeah so daniel where can people find you on the interwebs you can find me at Daniel Lee Harper on Twitter. It looks very much like so as of this day of this recording, Doctor Who has come back. Mm-hmm. We are planning on bringing back the Doctor Who podcast, which is laying dormant for very nearly two years. Uh, you can find that at com, and that is myself and my wife talking about Doctor Who. Uh, I have not seen the new episode yet because I had to record this podcast, but we are going to, uh, I think, bring that back and uh, start doing uh, episodes again. Nice. So uh, I say that now so that the 40 people who listen to this will be slightly disappointed if I don't like actually. Do it, so, <laughs> you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com where you can find our Apple podcast, YouTube, Facebook links, join our Facebook group. They must be destroyed on site on Facebook where you can find out about all this stuff and when it's coming out on the feeds or what have you. I don't know the technical terms for all this shit. Uh, I just record this crap. You do much more than record. You also put intros and outros on it. So. I do that too. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm a little bit better than just a trained monkey who throws the shit on a wall. Sometimes that shit makes a pattern that looks interesting. So that's good. Uh, but yeah, until then, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, Daniel, for joining me, and we will see you next time. Bye bye. Cheers.
You've been listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For other episodes, our Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Facebook group links, as well as podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through.